לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. ברשתו. to our many, many more viewers and listeners. We, we are so honored to have you with us. We enjoy getting your comments and emails. Keep them coming. And we enjoy being a part of your Torah life and your Shabbat life. I know that there are some people that, that use our Parsha talk to get into the mood of Shabbat and to uh, enjoy studying the Parsha. So let's do that right now. We're going to get into Parshat Re'eh. We want to thank, in particular, one of our listeners, my friend, Michael Mantel, a member of Ancha Chesed here in New York, who, commit, who com, uh, contributed to Camperman and the Berkshires, our Machanenu Shalanu, in honor of... Parsha Talk. Parsha Talk. The three rabbis. As long as we said Machanenu Shalanu, we have to give a shout out to Rabbi Paul Resnick. We missed you. We, we, we miss we, you, Paul. Oh, my God. We're, we're going to get for Klemp now, camp, etc. Well, camp Let's, is over. It's over. Let's talk about Parshat Re'eh. It starts out with, with an iconic verse. Re'eh anochi noten lifnecha mayom bracha uchala. See, I'm going to give to you today a blessing and a curse. What's the blessing? The blessing is if you do the mitzvot. What's the curse? If the curse is if you don't do the mitzvot. So the question that, that's hanging over us today as, as modern Jews reading this, is this a compelling way to organize religious life? Does this idea of the blessing and the curse animate us in any way? And does it, um, does it captivate us as a motivation for religious life? I'm going to start with you, Jeremy. Yeah, it, it seems that the, that the Torah, and this is a characteristic Um, approach in Devarim, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, th- there is something kind of carrot and stick to this. Bracha, do the mitzvot, then you will live a blessed life, and, and failure to do the mitzvot, you're going to get a stick, you're going to have a punished life. And I don't think that that, is, that transactional quality doesn't sit so easily, in, at least in my spirituality, I'm going to guess many of yours, but I do think that there is a great poetic possibility in the matter of... Um, Every human being forced to choose, are you going to live a life of blessing? Are you going to experience blessing? Are you going to spread blessing? Are you going to live a life that is cursed? And, and I think of mitzvot um, as training us spiritually, as building our religious personalities, as training us in virtue and training us in generosity and training, training us in the chesed. And I would say I, I couldn't, I certainly wouldn't be a rabbi or a Torah student if I didn't think that this life 
is inherently blessed. It's not the only decent way to live. There are lots of different ways to live. But if I didn't think that being a religious Jew and filling your life with, with mitzvot and filling your life with chesed ve'emet, if I didn't think that it was a blessing, I would have a very different life. I think it is a blessing, inherently so. Uh, maybe not perfectly, maybe not every single time for every single individual in every single detail, right. but overall, it's a bracha. bracha the gift. Nice. Every single mitzvah is a gift. Very. So it seems to me that this is actually the crystallization of the religious enterprise. It's the difference between license and freedom. Freedom, uh, with a shout out to Chris Christopherson, is a great line, is uh, just another word for nothing left to lose. But for us, freedom is the choice to submit to a higher authority, that we are doing God's work, not what necessarily we want to do at any given moment, but what we think God wants us to do. And that is the difference between the blessing and the curse. If we choose the right path, which is available to us, the life of mitzvot, as Jeremy mentioned, as our tradition has understood it in one way or another, then we live a life of blessing. If we deviate from that path, we may end up being cursed and even worse, God forbid, ending up cursing others as well. I mean, there, there, is, a, there is room here for uh, a reading that is close to the text, even for modern Jews. I, I suppose, you know, and we're thinking about this entering the season Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're, we're going to make a reference to this theme in so many ways uh, over and over again, you know, the idea that uh, we, we live a life of moral accountability and that we are rewarded or punished because of that life, even though it is, it's difficult to make it, uh, to connect all the dots. I think part of the religious imagination is stepping into a world in which these categories still apply. And, and I think maybe, maybe, of course, I, I, I would agree with you, Jeremy. And of course, you know, there's an intrinsic value to a religious life. You know, take, take Shabbat, for example. You can't get more blessed than the experience of Shabbat in the sense of what is peace, what is the comfort, what is joy. I mean, that's a blessing. Of course it's a blessing. You know, but then the question then that the Deuteronomy is asking is, but if you do Shabbat, are you, God's going to bless you. Right? If you follow Shabbat to the, to the, to the degree that, that, that the text and the halacha ordains, that's where your blessing is going to come from. That, maybe not. You know, I, I, um, uh, I think that responsibility is such a core Judaic concept, right? That you take responsibility for your behavior and you take responsibility for your society and for the world. And... Um, the, the question about reward and punishment and, uh, and whether there is, in, in this life, reward and punishment, you know, our tradition is very hard-headed. Of course, we, we say that you'll be blessed and, you, and you'll, you'll be rewarded or you'll be punished. The tradition also, Gemara also says at one point, schar mitzvah, alma there is no reward for the mitzvahs in this world um, because they, of course, looked at the world where people, good people suffered and bad people thrived. And so they wrestle with those problems like any human being has to wrestle with those problems. But I think that core to the idea that I am responsible for my life, um, that I am responsible for my choices and my behavior, and, and I have to fix the problems I create, and I have to fight to make sure that there aren't, aren't 
you know, more problems in my hand uh, that I take responsibility for the blessings I create is, is really very central. And so any one of us might or might like more or less the idea of, of you know, divine punishment or divine blessing or divine curse. But, but I think it's a very tight weave that's really valuable in the whole poetry of Judaism to think there are consequences. You are responsible for them. And, and if, if you didn't, it'd be a little hard, I think, to, to fully enter the religious space. That's what we're talking about. Barry, fine. So I, what I would add, the rabbinic statement that came to my mind was har mitzvah mitzvah, that ultimately the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. And, you know, I, I'm struck by the, the phrase here in the parsha Rahava Klala, and Jeremy, you used to harv onish, reward and punishment. Reward and punishment, it seems, comes from the outside. And we would expect God to say, I'm going to reward and punish you. But here he says, I'm putting before you a blessing and a curse. And the blessing is yours if you take it, and the curse is yours if you choose that as well. But it comes from the inside, not so much from the outside. So in a sense, we, we have the connection here to many, many different themes. And of course, this is going to be an important theme at the end of Devarim, as you choose life. That's going to be, you know, really one of the, the key key themes. But this this already goes back to to the Garden of Eden, because the, the, the freedom to make those choices is what defines human beings. Let's let's move on. You know, the, the Parsha deals, I think, at length with another important thematic moment, which is you're entering the land. Again, this is picking up from from a theme of last week. Last, last week's Parsha Eka was heavily centered on the land. Here you're coming into the land and you're gonna you're gonna encounter idolatry, paganism in the land, and that is going to exert, I think, a tremendous uh, amount of tension uh, between you and the land. It's something that that perhaps we can't relate to. We, 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 although we, we have many elements of our culture that can certainly be identified as pagan or pagan-like, we don't need to go there. But um, the idea that you need to come into the land and, and, and basically demolish all of these places, obliterate places of idol worship. Um, and, but when it comes to, uh, to God, uh, you're going to worship in the place that God chooses, Ki'im El Hamakom Asher Yivchar. And that line, Ki'im El Hamakom Asher Yivchar, is going to become a really important theme, that there is a central place that God chooses as the place of worship. So what is the dynamic that that creates in terms of the people, the population, in terms of worship, in terms of the collective life, the cultural life, of the people and, and religious life altogether. What, what is a central place do and what, what does it, what, what happens later on in the partial because of that or, you know, because of, of meat, etc. Barry, you want to take this? So two of the great symbols of the Bible are the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the Mikdash, the Beit Mikdash, the temple. The temple is a permanent place in one location in what comes to be Jerusalem in the later tradition. The Mishkan is something portable and goes wherever the people are. It's more, I suppose we might say in modern political language, a democratic institution, whereas the temple is a hierarchical institution. Now, when you were introducing the topic, Elliot, what occurs to me is that when you move into a land that you're going to live with other people, you can't destroy their places of worship, as tempting as that might be. What you want to do is destroy them for yourself. But if you actually want to live in friendship with other people, 
you have to have some respect for what they do while recognizing that what they do cannot become what you do. And that's a great tension in all religious life. How much do we become part of the larger community and how much do we maintain ourselves as a smaller community? That's very benevolent of you, but, but that's certainly not been the experience, certainly of, of Jewish history. And, and I think if you, if, you look at, if you look at the temple place alone and how many different kinds of, of institutions were built in that place, and, and look, at, look at religious institutions everywhere. I mean, you know, Lahavdiel, to make a distinction, you know, when, when, when places of worship are no longer usable by the community that established, they, they end up going in America to another community of worship that, uh, you know, worships a different religion. My shul in Montreal is now an, uh, a mosque, right? It, you know, it, it's, we, we, we do have that kind of, you know, transference here. That's the shul building, right? Not the community. Shul building. <laughs> you know, they actually all converted to a slum. <laughs> That's right. You know, not, not terribly proud of that, but... but well, the shul well, served as a congregational rabbi is now a Korean church. There you go. So, so you know, if you look the, at the... the the synagogue that Anshachesa was before the building is now is, is, is also a Baptist church, of okay. course. Uh, so following Barry's theme, then, it's, you know, you know the, the, the people that move into these places are not going to obliterate the buildings, certainly. And some, they're quite reverent to the origins of the building. I know that, you know, there are some churches that maintain the Judaic symbols of, of the, the previous uh, incarnations of their buildings. And some are, are pretty drastic about it. I mean, there's a tension. You're, you're, you're quite right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think that the, uh, it, this, is a, this is a space in which the, the distinction between the modern and the ancient is, is, is pretty, pretty bold because, first of all, the Bible presents paganism, uh, you know, among the ways as just like utterly abhorrent, right? Um, this is where they sacrifice their sons and daughters in fire. Okay, that's in this in this portion. It says you have to destroy those places because this is what those people do, and that's that is just disgraceful on any. It's just inhumane, and so the Bible portrays the need to 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 destroy those those places because of the um, you know just moral wickedness of those communities. It's a little hard for me to read these passages. You know, pull down their altars, destroy the thing, burn them. It's a little Taliban-y, frankly. You know, when the Taliban uh, destroy the the you know Hindus, the Buddha, the great Buddhas, um, the entire world was horrified at their at their you know extremism and and unsubtlety and you know fanaticism. And so, in the modern world, we have the reaction that Barry that Barry has. You can't expect to live with people if you are going to destroy them. The Bible's passage in this week's parsha is. You're right. We can't live with these people. We have got to destroy these people. There's, and anything less, you are going to be trapped in their wickedness. You've got, 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 got to get rid of it. That's not a way that I think, you know, people can, people can, plenty of modern writers have said, you know, monotheism is kind of, is, is kind of, to, you know, fanatical and, and paganism is kind of pluralistic. Isn't, isn't that nice? You can each have your own gods. I think this, this passage is, is hard for that reason. Uh, the Bible is obviously, Torah is obviously extremely, extremely exercised about 
the seductions, the attractions, some way you're going to be drawn after these pagans. Why? You know, Barry, I know you have a lot to say about why the pagans seems to be attractive to ancient people. Look, I, I mean, I interject and say, I think the pagan impulse is present today. I think we, we underestimate its, its, its power. I mean, I, I'm, you know, in terms of what we have seen in the last month or two months, the destruction of statues and the, and the orgiastic frenzy around that, you would think that, you know, iconoclasm, breaking things, you know, that's what we want. But, but in fact, what, what is happening here is, is I think, the, the outlet of, of a pagan impulse to, to, to create something or to venerate something else, the sheer, the sheer joy of, of exerting power and destruction. And I think that that's the line of continuity here. No, I, I think we, we are rabbinic Jews. So we are in tension with these, these passages about destruction. And we want to, you know, accommodate and find a way because we, we, we suffered uh, the pain of being destroyed. We, we, we have been on the receiving end of the destruction. We, we just, you know, a couple of weeks ago commemorated the 2000 and whatever anniversary of the destruction. We know this, okay? But we can't not recognize that the pagan impulses still, still quite exist. No, I just want to say, by the way, our... our, our our listeners might, you know, more familiar with the Torah perhaps than rabbinic literature. Um, it, it, I want to instantiate what Elliot said about, you know, we're rabbinic Jews. There's a famous, there's a famous passage about Rabban Gamliel in, uh, in, in Yavne or Tzipori or wherever he is. He goes into Aphrodite's bathhouse and the students say to him, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? Why, how can you go into the bathhouse with Aphrodite? And he says, she came into my bathhouse. I am not coming into her temple. Uh, you know, the rabbis, in fact, lived in the, the Palestinian rabbis of the Mishnaic era, not the Babylonians, but the Palestinians, uh, they lived in a world full, 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 full of idols. They saw idols everywhere they looked, and they developed certain um, coping mechanisms as Jews then living in Christendom and Islam developed coping mechanisms for living alongside things which they otherwise would have said are just totally incompatible with, with our lives. So what I'd like to add is we want to distinguish between the medium and the message here. I don't think that we have to tell people not to follow people who sacrifice their sons and daughters. I think that there's a natural repugnance to that. But you do have to tell people to be careful when other people present themselves in an attractive way. And I think that's really the subtext here in the Bible, is that paganism is not as abhorrent as the Bible makes it out, because if it really were that abhorrent, you wouldn't have to have too many laws about what to do with people like that. You don't have to tell people to do things that are repugnant to them. You have to tell them not to do things that are attractive to them. And paganism has its attraction. And we have to be honest about that. It might have been in the biblical period. Interesting. Okay, paganism, I want to note, that as soon as you said paganism has its attractions, your 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 camera froze up. So there you I'm go. Say, there you go. Rachel Klala, blessing and curse, right there. Okay. Speaking of, of, of interesting things too. that are attractive, let's talk about meat, eating meat. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you if you live in a land, you know the the Parshat Re'e tells us, and you know you want you want a steak. Uh, you are now allowed to have your steak on your own terms. Prior to that, all 
eat all consumption of meat needed to take place in the consecrated area. But but here there's a move. There's a move to to free that up. Barry, you want to just address this a moment? So I, I think what's important here, and actually for those of us who have started Masachet Eruvin, we find the steak in the lechi that they use to uh, make uh, that. Uh, 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 different steak. Well, we're going to joke there. I think that what's important here is that the Torah presents itself as having to adjust itself to certain realities. Um, as we were talking before, in a world where there are temples all over the land, small tea temples, where people can bring their animals to sacrifice and then eat the meat, you can have sacrifices as a requirement. But once you have a central place where sacrifice can only take place in the temple in Jerusalem, then you have to have a provision for people being able to eat meat outside of the sacrificial system. And it's a way of allowing people, recognizing that we're not doing things the way our ancestors did. We're not going to have these temples all over the land. And therefore, you're going to still be able to have your, your barbecue. And um, it's, it's something that's important for us. I think what speaks to us as moderns is the willingness to adjust the law to the realities of modern life in ways that would have been quite surprising and even horrific a generation or two before. It is fascinating, but it does raise the issue of, you know, what, what constitutes the, the line? What's the line? You know, if you want to keep adapting and keep adapting, you know, we can give you tons of examples of that. There, there, there comes a point where what you are adapting is, and, and the result of it is no longer intelligible. Right. So I think that we have to take into account that a lot of these kinds of questions will only be answered by history. We don't know what the right thing is to do. If we had lived 2,000 years ago in the days of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we ourselves, thinking ourselves as great rabbinic Jews, probably would have seen ourselves as Pharisees. But the people living then weren't quite so sure that the Pharisees were going to emerge after the destruction of the temple. If the temple had stood, maybe the Sadducees would have become the dominant group, and it would have been their descendants that we would have been part of today. So I think what's important in religion is a certain amount of humility, that we have to recognize that we're not going to have all the answers, that we have to do what we think is best, taking into account that the decisions that we make, as heartfelt as they might be, might turn out to be wrong and even disastrous. Catastrophic, I would say. Okay. <laughs> well, you Look, always like to go in better, so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so let's let's um, turn to another passage in the in this parsha. It's a favorite pasuk. Banim atem Um You are children to God, and uh, it's a favorite pasuk because. There is a lovely um, statement in Pirkeavot which says, "You are banim. You are children if you behave as children, and even if you don't behave as children." It, there is a what the tradition understands here is God's unconditional love for 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 the people, and um, you know, given what we said before, you know, blessing, curses, accountability, all these things, to know that God loves the people of Israel unconditionally, that's a, that's a, that's a gorgeous sentiment. It's a beautiful sentiment. I, th I think the, um, 
the parental, first of all, this, this metaphor is, of course, suffuses so much in Judaism as we're going to bench this week. We're going to bench Rosh Chodesh Elul. We're looking towards the high holidays, um, you know, and, and the image of God as parent is, is, is both parent and judge as part of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. Im kabanim, im kabadim. But I think that the experience of be, being a parent um, is really illuminating to the metaphor of the divine parenthood. Uh, the, uh, the, the kind of nasty, sarcastic, sort of demeaning uh, Freudian re- reading of religion is that people are children and they, they want God to be big daddy who's going to, you know, take care of everything and, and reward when warranted and punish when warranted. And, and you know, there's a kind of a, there's a, kind of a great patriarchy uh, to religion, and that and that's a that's a very ungenerous reading of religion. I, I think that as a parent, the depth of love and hope and concern um, is really you know such a powerful piece of this metaphor. When I have the metaphor of the divine parenthood, I actually I'm not necessarily seeing myself as child who looks to the divine parent and says, "Please take care of me." Um, I actually feel much more moved to feel that God and I are parents together and we want to give care and we want to take care and we have such anxiety about our loved, beloved children and we have such hope for them. Is it also, I mean, it obviously includes frustration and disappointment and includes that the, the depth of pathos, emotion, you know, that, that we are all wrapped up in with, with our children. We, we, we love them and we, we live our lives in some ways so connected to them on every level. You're only as happy as your least happy child. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Okay. So the Rabbanu Shalom so must be often very sad. So, so the Rabbanu Shalom is, is, is experiencing the anguish of parenthood with us. You know, in addition to the other metaphors that the Rabbana Shalom experiences, language of, you know, relationship. Let's, let's, uh, we want to talk about kashrut. We want to talk about, um, you know, we have the, the repetition of the, of the kashrut code here. And we have uh, certain um, points about poverty. Efes ki lo b'cha evyon. There's never going to be a time when, when you don't have people who are poor. Uh, and what are you supposed to do with them? You are supposed to reach out to them. Uh, so, so what is the Torah trying to do here for us? Sorry. I think here the Torah is making an important political point that certain social conditions exist not because of the people that are enmeshed by them, but because of the world that we live in. Poverty is a fact that we have to contend with. It does not do us any good, and certainly does God no good, to blame poor people for being poor. Our job is to help them. There's a famous statement attributed to the Baal Shem Tov, who once said reportedly that everything has its purpose. And so one of the Hasidim asked him, what about atheism? The denial of the belief in God, and he said that too has a purpose. 
When you see a poor person, you do not say, God shall provide, you go help them. And I think the Torah here is at the foundation of that sentiment of the Baal Shem Tov, that when we see poverty, when we see people who need our help, our response, our mandated response from God is to help them, not to inquire how they're responsible for what has befallen them. Jeremy, the, uh, the, the mitzvot uh, of the sabbatical system, the Shemitah and the Yovel, which can be found uh, a, a little bit in Exodus, but more developed in, in, uh, in Leviticus, um, they are agricultural, and they don't include in those other places the mitzvah of, sh- of sh- uh, Shemitah Ksafim, of the, rena- of the forgiving of loans every seventh year. And that's a, that's a chidush, an innovation here of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, it's, it's, it's a surprising thing to realize, but it's here in our Parsha this week, that when the Bible is talking about stakai, it's, it's actually talking about loans, ha'avet ta'avitenu, which is clearly la'avot is a loan, is to make a loan. And so the Bible is actually not talking so much about, about gifts in the way that we think we write a check and then give the money. It's loaning the money to an individual. Um, and I, there's something, first of all, I'm in favor, of course in favor of gifts, um, but it's also something uh, uh, very, very powerful about the inter twined human communion, communion between the giver, the loner, and the debtor. Uh, Maimonides famously has the eight levels of tzedakah, and the highest one is a loan. And over the years, many times people have expressed to me, well, wh- wait a minute, that's, that's, that can't be the highest kind of tzedakah, because the, 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 the tzedakah giver gets the money back, so it's not really the selfless act. But why Maimonides thinks it's the best is because the gift suggests the powerlessness of the recipient. You, you really can't do anything. I, I know you're, you're totally lost, and I'm just going to give you this because you're, you're not capable of providing for yourself. Whereas the loan has a totally different kind of, um, of, of interpersonal dimension. The loan says, the, the, the wealthy person says to the poor person, I totally believe in you. You are going to do great, and you are going to have the dignity of being able to pay me back and stand on your own two feet um, the loan is what helps the people have have their own maximal uh, sense of achievement and independence and strength and power and self confidence. So loans are loans are a powerful thing. Um, I also love the fact that the that the, um, the 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 Torah is about cultivating our own virtue, cultivating us to be the best people we can. And in these in these passages here in, in Deuteronomy chapter fifteen, it says, you know, when somebody comes to you. You can't harden your heart. You can't close your fist. Open your hand. You have to be an, a soft-hearted, uh, open-handed person. And that's, that's, that's what I think the Torah is trying to help us become. Generosity is, is the um, expression of the heart. And, and I'm just, you know... I'm thinking, you know, in Rosh Hashanah terms, you know, there's this, the line that says, four things change you. Tzedakah changes you. Giving tzedakah, and, and in thinking about that uh, idea, and why does tzedakah change you? It's exactly what you said. Tzedakah means that your heart is open. When your heart is open to another human being, um, something happens to you when it's done in, in the right sense. Although I, I, I do want to concur with you and say, okay, so... What this is talking about uh, on a level is is human dignity, that that the Torah understands the the, the unique power relationship 
that exists between the supplicator and the donor, right? And that there's always going to be a, a real hierarchy between the two. And I think the Torah and in general Judaism is very sensitive to that, that, that in a moment of inequality, power inequality, we, we want to establish an equilibrium between, between individuals. We want to affirm the dignity of the recipient, and we want to affirm the idea that an that, that individual can actually pull up his, her own socks and get back on, you know, get a microloan and, 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 and work on it. And look at, look at the power of that economically in, in the world. Microloans, you know, have lifted so many people out of, of poverty in, in the impoverished world. I don't know, Barry, you want to weigh in on? Um, well, I concur with what you said, Ali. Oh, yeah, was... <laughs> you were nodding there. All right, so let's... You're in favor I, of Takatu, aren't you? I'm, I'm, I'm charitable. So charitable ending here is, is the, the, the holiday cycle. This is Parsha Re'eh. It's also, you know, the Parsha that, that is read in the diaspora on second days uh, and uh, includes um, a, a bit of uh, the reiteration of the calendar. Any Any thoughts on that and, and some of the mitzvot connected to the holidays with, uh, with the end of the Parsha. So here, there are two things of note. The first one is the, the verse three is the one that says you should remember the Exodus all the days of your life, which produces a famous Midrash that is included in the, in the Mishnah Brachot and again in the Haggadah about what the significance of remembering the Exodus all the days of your life is. Um, in the world, to, in this world as well as in the world to come. And curiously, we recite this each of the three days we say Yisker, uh, ex except for Yom Kippur, of course, the last day of Pesach, the seventh day of Shavuot, and on Shemini Atzeret, because Yisker, part of our remembering is national as well as personal. The other thing I would mention here is that the Torah spend some time historicizing the holidays. The holidays as we know them originated as pagan, as Canaanite agricultural holidays, and were taken over by the Israelites when they came into the land. And here Shavuot is linked to the Egyptian experience. We observe Shavuot because we were once slaves in Egypt. Of course, for us as rabbinic Jews, we think of Shavuot as man matan Tenu, the time that the Torah was given to us. But here in Devarim, it, we're observing it because we lived in Egypt. Each of the Shlosh Regalim, which originated, as I said, as agricultural holidays focused in the land of Israel, ultimately become holidays that were part of our past experience outside of the land. They're historical holidays that can be observed anywhere, not just agricultural holidays that can only be observed in the land. Jeremy. Uh, I would just say there's a, there's a lot of interesting in the holiday cycle, but but of course it gives us you know, I think that I think God wants, uh, as Barry was saying earlier in the conversation, God does demand us uh, of us a certain a certain sense of behavior and a, and, a, and a certain sense of virtue, and I, I think God wants uh, uh, something more than just that we're happy, but. God also wants us to be happy. God also wants us to thrive and celebrate. And so the, the, the holiday cycle gives us an opportunity to rejoice. And that's just precious and awesome. You know what? I want to conclude with, with um, a verse that's really important. Uh, right at the end, Ish kemat nat yado. 
you're supposed to, when you come to the place of pilgrimage, everybody brings their gift, but everybody brings what they can bring. Ishkimatnat, what they're capable of. To me, it's a remarkable. I use that verse in a, in a we, we, we dedicated a, a table covering to my late father, my sister, my brother, and, and, and we used that, I used that verse because uh, it, it's a holiday covering, and um, uh, it suggests that everybody has their own gift. You know, the three of us, we, we, we come together, we, we all have our different, you know, pulls and pushes in, in this. It's, I mean, that's what makes it so, so wonderful. Each one of us has uh, this gift, and each person that we know, you know, each, each one of, each person in our lives, in our communities, uh, they have their gifts. And, and um, the recognition here that validates that everybody has an important thing to give, whether it's in material or whether it's in spiritual, whether it's in the life of Torah, I think it's just so, so life affirming for all of us. And uh, I think that that brings us to the end of our time together. I just, it's such a blessing. To be together. The bracha. Bracha. Yes. So, the bachelor to all of our community, to our devoted watchers and listeners. We'll see you soon. The bachelor.